1: The Gators bounced back big against Colorado State last week, proving that sometimes it pays to be special in a 48-10 victory. The often forgotten third phase of the game took center stage last Saturday, as Florida used two block kicks and an electric pump return to further ignite the swamp on a day that the thermometer displayed a record 96 degrees at kickoff. On today's show, we'll recap that performance and look toward the upcoming challenge on Rocky Top with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Then, we'll learn about the long and winding road that wide receiver Van Jefferson took to become a Gator. But first, the Gators used their renewed focus on special teams to turn what could have been a close game against Colorado State into a one-sided affair. To open up our roundtable discussion with Chris and Scott covering last week's game and the upcoming battle with the Vols, Scott began by explaining why the win over the Rams was significant at this early stage of the rebuilding process. I think
2: they responded positive to their first real adversity under Dan Mullen. Uh, you know, the loss to Kentucky certainly dampened what had been a, a positive, feel-good off-season and early start of the season. And then right away you have uh, the second game of the season against an SEC opponent. And that was the first time they've lost their SEC opener since 2004 to uh, Tennessee. So it had been a while since that happened. And uh everyone was kind of curious to see how they would respond, especially after Dan Mullen talked all week about, basically said, hey, we got to get tougher. We're not as tough as we need to be. And I thought that they answered some of those questions. But as he said, they still have a lot of work to do. They're going to play a lot better opponents than Colorado State. And we're going to see that, at least in the SEC, against Tennessee this week.
0: After that Kentucky game, I think you know, they needed to win the game. But the special teams, I mean, to have those kind of big plays like that, 85 yard punt return, a, ru- a hard rush on a punt that blows up the punter, a block punt for a touchdown. All of that stuff justifies everything Dan Mullen has been saying since this uh, coaching staff took over about how special teams were going to be an equal, of equal importance to the other two thirds, offense and defense. And they put a lot of time into this. It's not just lip service. Um, Special teams, you know, we know from the product on the field the last few years, they weren't emphasized. And when you have guys like Tyree Cleveland and C.J. Henderson, some of the best players on this team, the most athletic players on the team playing special teams, flying around and doing the stuff that those units and kicking game units were doing, that that charges up a sideline. Huge impact. And, yes, it was Colorado State, but uh, I think you're going to obviously see the same aggression, the same uh, chance-taking the same sort of emphasis put on uh, the the kicking game element as the Gators move on this season, and we'll see some of those uh, big plays in SEC games as we move on.
1: It's an interesting part of the game that we haven't talked that much about in the last few years because, as you noted, yeah, it it, it hasn't been a game-changer, and certainly Florida's had a great kicking game. That's been consistent with Pinheiro, and certainly the, the punting has been good for a long time, but it's been so long since we've seen, you know, the ability to maybe score 14, 21 points off of special teams, which is the kind of stuff we saw this past weekend. And if, if you look at where Florida is, both offensively and defensively, Chris, you talk about it being that other third of the game. I mean, we could be talking about games later this year where that's the reason that Florida wins a game, not just sort of window dressing on a, a nice performance.
0: I'll go back to uh, Will Muschamp, the uh, game that cost him his job. You meant you talked about winning games on special teams. Gators lost that game because of special teams. I think there was a blocked punt late in the game. I think there was, it wasn't a missed extra or last year there was a missed extra point that cost the Gators. I believe was it the Texas game or the LSU game? I believe so. Yeah. I mean, and you mentioned, uh, you know, 21 points can change a game, 20 yards can change a game. Mm-hmm. I didn't even mention that Freddie Swain had the 85-yard punt return. He also had a 22-yard punt return that uh, set up a touchdown in the in the first half. As Florida stretched the, I believe, the lead to 20 to nothing. How many 20-yard punt returns have we seen in the last couple of years? I, I do remember Brandon Powell catching the ball and falling down a bunch. We count them on one hand. Yeah, right? and Swain's already got I think three. Swain's, uh, yeah, Swain's already got three over two. How many block kicks? Four now this season. There are three. They had a total of four over the last five seasons combined. Okay, so wow. I, I do a thing in a quick slant where we do staggering statistics. That, that's a pretty staggering statistic mm-hmm. right there. I
1: think we were all really surprised to see the, the defense get gashed the way that they did against Kentucky. Uh, numbers that, you know, we haven't seen since Georgia Southern as much as we hate to bring that game up. But they really seemed to tighten things up this past weekend, and that was a, a prolific offense they were facing off against in Mike Bobo's. So what was the difference against Colorado State that that maybe we saw improvement from week to week?
2: Well, it started up front, Adam. They got some pass rush off the edge. You know, Jabari Zaniga was named SEC Defensive Player of the Week, two and a half sacks. Uh, Ja'Kai Polite showed up a little bit they had C.C. Jefferson back in the lineup for the first time this season and then it goes back to something that's very fundamental tackling I, I think they tackle a lot better that was something that uh, the coaches emphasized after that uh, loss to Kentucky when they missed uh, according to Dan Mullen 20 tackles uh, I thought you saw some cleaner fundamentals and you got to remember Colorado State ran almost twice as many plays in that game they ran 80 some plays to Florida's I think 48. So they had the ball a long time. They really prevented the long drives that you saw Kentucky put together. Uh, they they limited that against Colorado State. Other than uh, I think one than uh, what they had a 48 yard touchdown pass where the tight end got open down the middle. But for the most part, for an offense that was averaging about 370 yards passing a game. Uh, they kept them quiet. The ground game was not Colorado State strength, but they did do better in the run, uh, defense than certainly those first two games. You know, you had, you did that with Trey Dean and in for Marco Wilson in the secondary. He did have a penalty, a holding penalty that was costly at some, at one point, but I think overall he played pretty well. Uh, the young linebackers, Bashawn Joseph had a pretty good game. As they continue to work without David Reese, although I think that's going to change against Tennessee. So, you know, to answer your question, Adam, I just think guys played better. I think Dan Mullen got their attention following the Kentucky loss, uh, and they they kind of went back to the basics on defense. I don't think it was any fundamental schematic change or anything, but they did play better overall.
1: Yeah, offensively, it was kind of an up and down day for Felipe Franks, and he didn't really have a lot of reps. As you noted, Scott, Florida didn't run that many plays, which is sort of a byproduct of being really good on special teams. When you return a kick and you block a punt, you're not going to get the offense on the field as much. So that's certainly part of it. Didn't really get into a rhythm. But I-, I thought it was interesting the way that Dan Mullen made it clear that Felipe Franks is his guy. And even if he, he throws a bad pick, he makes some bad decisions, he thinks that Franks is giving them the best chance to win, I, I guess, regardless. So and- unless it's a matter of uh, you know pouting or attitude, which he made pretty clear, he, he is rolling with Franks and has real belief that he is, is the right guy at the moment. You know, Felipe
0: started 0 for 6 with an interception. Twitter was angry with him. Would you agree with that, Scott?
1: <laughs> yeah, they <were> fairly angry.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the interception, um, everyone knows that I was watching that game. I mean, who was the receiver? Was it Josh Hammond?
2: They were going for a Hammond down the Hammond middle. down
0: the middle of field, waving his arms. I mean, he's wide open. He's just late down the middle. It reminded me of like Trent Dilfer with the Bucks in the nineties and stuff. I mean, that's you know, just it, it was it was a play you can't make. And it's funny, I was watching that play with Steve Spurrier down the hall yesterday and he goes, I tell you what, he goes, he's showing he's stopping Israel get rid of it right here, right here. And it was a good, you know, second to second and a half before because the corner in man coverage on the on the wide out to the left of foot in the far left of Felipe Franks is the guy who made the interception. And Spurrier looks at me, he goes, goes I'll tell you what, he goes, Coach Mullen got a lot more patience with his quarterback tonight. <laughs> he goes, you know, you only got to take him out a couple possessions to get their attention. I go, well, I go, his, his tactics are a little different, and I, I thought it was funny. He wasn't mad at him at the interception as much as he was mad at him at a personal foul or, excuse me, an unfortunate conduct he got after a positive play that got the Gators, I think, down around the five-yard line or something like that. It was an. It, he was retaliating for something that happened or something that was said to him, and. It became an offset an offsetting penalty, but I really like the handle and the pulse that the coach has on his team. The coach has on the quarterback. Um, maybe Scott can speak to this a little more because he addressed it in a story he wrote after the game. There's some in, internally. The Felipe Frank's got a, got a talking to a little bit about how to handle some things, and it didn't just come from Dan Mullen. We've seen a difference in him just coming out the podium the last couple times he has. And I think he's trying, he's figuring out some things about what it means to be the quarterback here. It's something you earn. And once you have it, there's a standard that has to be, uh, maintained. That's the University of Florida going back a while, but it's obviously under what Dan Mullen believes to be the, uh, the expectation of that quarterback position. And, uh, and again, I'll let, I'll let Scott maybe, uh, enhance that a little bit.
2: Yeah. It really goes to that point, you know, playing quarterback of Florida is probably one of the, You know, the biggest positions in college football, if you look at historically speaking, I mean, there's three Heisman winners here. I think only one other school, a couple other schools can say they have three Heisman winning quarterbacks. I think Notre Dame and actually Oklahoma. I'd have to go back and do my research. FSU, FSU, yep. So there's not many of them. So if you play quarterback at University of Florida, you're going to be in the spotlight. Good and bad on Saturday, And especially in the world we live in now, you are going to get criticized. That is part of the game part of the position and I think you know it's pretty easy for if you just watch Felipe Franks sometimes over the last year you know he, he gets a little bit maybe defensive when he's with the media. Dan
0: Mullen used the word gotta have thick skin. Yeah, yeah you
2: gotta have thick skin and that's what he's trying to teach him and there's been some discussions with Felipe recently uh, with members of the staff and other internal personnel just he wants Felipe to have some fun like he wants the rest of this team to have some fun. And I remember going to a speaking engagement of Mullins back in the screen and he said he, want, he wants to see, it looks like Felipe wasn't having a lot of fun last year and he wants him to have more fun because you cannot play the game successfully. And this goes for everybody, but certainly the quarterback, if, if you look at it more about a relief when you win instead of really enjoying it. And I think that's a, it's a, it's a concept that's going to take time. Uh, but it's also a unique situation to Florida, the quarterback position. Uh, you're never going to be—I uh, don't think—rarely. Tim Tebow was special, you know. But even Danny Wuerffel, I can remember Chris. I mean, he had his moments early, <laughs> yeah, where there was a lot is. of people who didn't know if Danny Werfel was going to be the guy. And a lot of people, I'm sure, back then, if we had Twitter, they would have said, "No, man, that <laughs> guy. You need to." You need to move on from Danny Warfel. That's just, that's just where we are. And you either have to avoid that stuff or ignore it totally. And if you see it, you just have to kind of let it bounce off because you, you can't play and win that way. And I think that's just what Dan Mullen's trying to get to Felipe Franks. And he has all the physical tools that we've talked about, but he still has some growth there on the mental side. And that's where uh, we're going to see this season, I think probably determine his long-term fate there.
0: I can only imagine if Kyle Morris or Terry Dean or, or Doug Johnson had Twitter at their disposal. Oh man, I oh, mean, God. it's a, it's, a, it's yeah, it is. It's a tough situation, but but that's right about the quarterback. And Dan Mullen even said he goes, "You don't believe that playing quarterback here is uh, is important, or you know, or has some responsibility to go look at the statues out yeah. in front of out there in front of the stadium." So
1: well, and you know, it's the probably the, the biggest job that fans expect of Dan Mullen is to get that part worked out. But it, it's not easy to come in and change things. I mean, if you look around right now at first year coaches, Chip Kelly is 0 and 3 at UCLA, Scott Frost is 0 2, Willie Taggart is 1 and 2, and, and FSU looks like a shell of what they've been in the past. I mean, there's a, a real struggle in turning around major college football programs because the, these are cruise ships. These are not dinghies, right? These things take a while to steer in the right direction. So, I guess by that standard, Florida's actually in pretty good shape if you watched any of those other teams that have high-profile new coaches.
0: There's usually a reason why well, there's a coaching change, right? Sure. And, uh, especially at a, when you're out of Power 5. Usually it's not because um, the guy's gone to a better job. It's usually because it's a rebuild thing. And uh, this maybe makes a good segue into our next point. These uh, Tennessee's in a rebuild. Florida's in a rebuild. Maybe we'll find out this week who's in a better shape at, in, a, in a snapshot of this particular moment.
1: And speaking of Tennessee, you know, that's who we're going to see this weekend. And they got lit up in week one by West Virginia and Will Greer, who I know a lot of Gator fans would still very much like to see as their quarterback. But that's what happens in the, in this game. So they've recovered since then, but may, maybe not against the best competition. So in some ways, kind of like Florida story. So, you know, what are the expectations for this matchup? There seem to be a lot of question marks about it.
2: Uh, yeah, I think it's a big question mark because it's two programs that we recall, you know, Adam, in these matchups going back through the 90s and early 2000s. I mean, this was the game of the year in the SEC for a decade. Of it was course, the
0: game of the year in college football early in the season. Yeah. I mean, the fact it was they played this game in September, both teams are usually in the top five, certainly in the top ten. So, to his point, that was, that was absolutely right. Yep. Yeah. and a flashback to that
2: is on Saturday, I'm looking at the Tennessee Notes. They're honoring the uh, 1998 National Championship team, you know, 20 years. Of course, their AD now is Philip Fulmer, who was the head coach back then, and you got Steve Spurrier here, the ambassador, so maybe those two guys will will have a hug up in Knoxville, or maybe maybe not. But uh, <laughs> bottom line is, uh, this was, as Chris said, this was a game that used to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated back when that was a huge deal, and now it's two programs that are kind of trying to find their way out of the, the forest, I guess, and get up to the top again. and you know, you look at the matchup, I think on paper, I think most people think Florida is a little bit ahead of where Tennessee is right now. Uh, they beat them 12 out of 13 years. But, of course, they did lose up in Knoxville their last trip up there in 2016. And uh, Jeremy Pruitt has a five national championship rings and assistant coach. So he's certainly had a, a great impact in the places he's been. But how good of a head coach is he? You know, everybody's still trying to figure it out. Dan Mullen, you know, he did some good things at Mississippi State. Now he's at Florida trying to trying to kind of restore this place to where it used to be. So I'm as curious as you are and the fans out there to see how this plays out Saturday because I don't know what to expect. I, I think that it's going to be another good challenge for the Gators because it is the first road game under Mullen. It's a game that, you know, they regrouped a little bit coming off Colorado State. And you don't want to start 0-2 in the SEC,
0: Chris. No. I mean, Jeremy Pruitt is another uh, go at, at the old Saban tree. Um, Tennessee's gone there twice. They went with Derek Dooley, and that didn't work out. And yeah, Rob, Florida went there twice, too. Yeah, yeah, Florida went there twice also, and it didn't work out. So um, people are going to keep going and picking from that tree just uh, until they find the right one, because I think one's kind of working out in Georgia okay. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of, uh, you know, you're, you're going up into a hostile place. um Uh, it's the first road game under Mullen. So, you know, you want to see how he handles that, how his players handle that. I'm sure he's interested in, I mean, he'll, he'll go about it differently. um, If I'm not mistaken, Uh, they're not wearing ties on road trips. They're going to wear ties as they're walking the stadium. Is that, is that what they, is that the way they're doing? I mean, they're doing some different things about how they're, how they're going about their business on game day. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the prep and stuff will be the same, but, uh, and maybe, maybe that matters. Maybe it doesn't, but you want to see how those guys handle it. And ultimately you get in the stadium and, um, in terms of X's and O's, Tennessee's probably going to want to run the ball. Uh, Ty Chandler uh, is a guy who rushed, I believe 12 times for about 153 yards in the game and their, their win the other day. They're defensively, they haven't given up a touchdown in two weeks, but. That's against East Tennessee State and Texas El Paso. Mm. Their wins aren't a whole lot more impressive or less impressive than what Florida's done in beating Charleston Southern and Colorado State. So both teams will find out a lot about themselves um, after they they play this game. And, of course, it's the first of Two in a row on the road. Florida goes to Mississippi State next week in the Dan Mullen scott Strickland Bowl. And it's actually three of the next four on the road because they go to Vandy a week after playing LSU uh, later in October.
1: Boy, and Vandy looked pretty good. Probably should have beaten Notre Dame on the road. So certainly the SEC East seems to be getting stronger. We saw that from Kentucky. And uh, there, there's more ahead, certainly, after this weekend. So we'll get into that later. Uh, I want to talk about guys that are going to be available, guys that won't be available this week. Scott, you, you touched earlier on uh, David Reese hopefully being back we thought that last week but didn't happen so uh, what's his status and also tell us about Malik Davis some some tough news for him well with
2: uh, Reese I mean according to Mullen you know it sounds like he uh, is expected to be back him and C.J. McWilliams and we there was some talk last week that he may be back and it just didn't happen uh, he's been battling that injured ankle you know how those ankle sprains are I mean they do slow a player up and Getting David Reese back, I think, is big because you saw CC C. Jefferson's return last week. Maybe sparked the defensive line. Uh, the the in core took some hits those first couple weeks. They did play better last week, but I just think that anytime you get your leading tackler back, that's a, that's a plus for, for your defense. Uh, and then on the flip side of that, it's a tough loss with Malik Davis. He broke his foot early in the second quarter, uh, against Colorado State and and, you know, he he's, the Florida backfield's in pretty good shape without him, but the one thing that he gives that maybe none of the other guys do, although we saw it from Damian Pierce, he's he's that home run threat is what Greg Knox calls him. Uh, every time he gets the ball, there's a chance that he can take it to the house and uh, you just hate to see him have a, another year where he may be missing the rest of the season. We don't know the severity of it yet, but anytime you get a broken foot, I mean, if he gets back uh, by the end of the season, it'll be a surprise. So that's a tough loss for Florida, a tough break for uh, Malik Davis. But uh, I, I think at the same time with Jordan Scarlett, LaMichael Pirine and the, the emergence of freshman Damian Pierce, I still like the talent right now. They just, they have to, you know, keep those guys healthy because you don't want to go below, what, three healthy running backs.
1: Yeah, the injury bug, not only is it a bit in Florida a little bit, the regularity with which it's hit former Gators recently is stunning. Keanu Neal out for the season, Vernon Hargraves out for the season, John Jalapio out for the season. Uh If if you're a Gator a former Gator right now, uh, take care because the, the injury bug seems to be uh disproportionately finding people with uh, the orange and blue running through them. But hopefully no one gets hurt attempting our PAT this week. And I want to take this to something uh, near and dear to, to my heart. Not as much to you guys, but I still want to get your perspective on it. I want to talk about boxing. Uh, big fight this past weekend, Canelo Alvarez and Triple G. And as is often the case in boxing, uh, a very controversial decision where most people disagreed with the judges. Now, the way that boxing is judged, for those that don't know, is the judges' scorecards are kept secret until the very end of the fight, once it's over, then the scores are revealed, a winner is determined. There's been a movement for a long time to have open scoring, where after each round, the judges' scores are displayed so that the fans know what the score is as the fight is going along, and also, the fighters know what the score is, so they have a better idea of what they need to do to win the fight. Now, there's two camps here. the camp that says, oh tradition's important, and this is the way it's always been done, and it, it creates that sense of pageantry and the mystery of having to wait till the end. And then there's the other side, which says, can you imagine if there was a football game where they just played and no one knew the score, and at the very end, they just said, oh, by the way, uh, you know, the, the Gators won by seven, cause, which is basically what we're talking about here. So I'm curious for you guys, you have a little bit of that old school vibe to you, but you also like to bring in the new. Where do you yep. stand on this topic? How, how do you think boxing should deal with this going forward?
0: Well, as far as tradition, I mean, there was a tradition once of covered wagons going across the the Western Plains and stuff. And now we have trains and planes and automobiles. But uh, I see now, like, as replay has has taken over and and Scott and I obviously grew up in a time where they didn't have that. And that's made, uh, um, officials in sports more accountable. I mean, I imagine umpires don't like the little screen that shows where the balls and strikes are. Sure. Uh, eventually they had to give way to that. You know who makes the pass interference call in a close part of a game. You know the referee who's getting the guy in foul trouble on the, on the basketball floor. And, uh, let's be honest, like when uh, this is obviously a, a subjective thing when you're scoring. So I'll go to the Olympics and think about, gymnastics or diving and you you know what the judges scores are and that you know that the russian judge gave this particular score to this particular person and they, and they talk about it mm-hmm. sometimes so there's accountability in other places you know why why not go ahead and change that and you made an excellent point i hadn't even thought about i think the fighters should know what the scores and because That's going to dictate strategy. Why not roll that in and give uh, people doing the analysis something else to talk about? And if the guy knows he has to start scoring more points with with some more punches or he has to go for a knockout, which is probably he he knows that anyway, um, you know, why why not give him that that advantage?
1: Well, and just to to follow up on that, that's another one of the arguments you get from the, the purists who say, well, wait a minute. Uh, if a guy knows he's up seven rounds to nothing in a 12-round fight, then he'll just run around the rest of the time. It'll be a, it'll be a boring rest of the fight. To that, I would say, well, that'll be really interesting because then the other guy knows he needs the a knockout sh- and he's chasing him the rest sh- of the sh- fight. Exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'll almost stick with what Chris said. I mean, as far as being a purist, you know, there's certain things that I've liked and I don't like about new, new changes. We've talked about. I'm not a, the biggest fan of analytics taking over baseball, but I am a fan of instant replays, you know, reversing bad decisions. And, you know, take what happened here a couple weeks ago against Kentucky. Evan McPherson kicks a field goal. Yeah, most people thought it was good. The ref called it no good. There's no review available. Why not have lasers shooting up from the top of the goalpost? I mean, it's sure. pretty easy to do now. You could easily see if it can't, you know, broke that laser or not on TV. That would have helped solve that call. And as a boxing fan, I mean, I don't follow it like I used to. I used to love boxing. It's always bothered me that you were thrown for some surprises like you were. So I like the fact that if there's a movement to have the scoring for everybody to see and also to hold those folks accountable because there have been some decisions over the years that you're like, okay, who's paid off here? Mm -hmm. Um, And you know what, Adam, while we're at it? What's the deal with soccer, man? This whole thing at the end of the games, you know, I hate when they say, oh, the clock's being kept on the field. It's a one-nothing game. Someone actually scored, and the other team's trying to tie it up. And they're like, well, you know, nobody knows how much time's left. Oh, so you're guessing, is it two minutes? Is it four minutes? Yeah. Why, don't they, why can't they correct that? Don't criticize soccer to add that's his, that's his game. Well, that's why I'm saying that's why, and that's why while we're, talking about, it while we're talking about boxing, I think the soccer thing, the game time on the field, the end of the game, when no one has a clue at how much actual time's left, I think that's something that needs to be addressed too.
1: Chris is trying to set me up here. No, I, <laughs> I, I could not agree more with Scott. I think that a lot of the rules in soccer are completely arcane and asinine. Let's take it back to football. Imagine at the end of, of a football game, if a ref is just like, you know what? I'm gonna give him two more chances to score here. Yeah, they, they look pretty close on those. I'll give him a third just for fun. It's basically yeah. what you're doing. It's completely arbitrary. Whatever you know, when when the ref decides to blow the whistle, it wouldn't be accepted in any other sport. Uh, so I totally agree with Scott that stoppage time in soccer is ridiculous. But it's another soccer and boxing, also two sports that have struggled to fight back the purists. Baseball, football. Basketball, they've kind of blown right through those people, but uh, soccer and boxing are two of those sports where the the holdouts from a traditional standpoint are uh, are tough to overcome.
2: No, I mean I, I agree, and it's we're in a time where this technology, for better or worse, it's I think it's definitely helped officiating and you know bad calls throughout sports. And if boxing, if that if that would help actually get boxing more relevant again, I'd be all for it because we're at a place now where sadly. As someone who really enjoys boxing and, and the storylines, I mean, it's not a big part of our sports culture as it used to be.
0: Adam, I think we're going to have to wrap up this podcast because Scott and I need to go over to the physics department and start working on that laser that's going to go <laughs> above the...
1: We just need the, the laser pointers from the early 2000s and stick them <laughs> in the, <laughs> each of the goal... I mean, Chris yeah, could climb up couple, there and do that. A,
0: a couple rubber bands. I'll just climb up, yeah. up... If, yeah. If we're not here next week for the podcast, <laughs> that's where
1: we are. Yeah. If yeah, if you guys aren't here next week, you're busy outfitting all the goalposts in the country uh, with laser pointers to help make sure that no one else has to suffer the fate that Devin McPherson did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, okay. But and if you're not doing that, you'll probably be writing lots of fresh content on FloridaGators.com and putting that out all over the world through Twitter at Gators Scott and at Gators Chris. So whichever one of those routes that you guys take, uh, we certainly look forward to seeing what you do. Thank you very much, as always.
2: Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam.
1: When the NCAA handed down serious sanctions to the Ole Miss football program last year, they allowed rising seniors to transfer and have the chance to play immediately. As Van Jefferson weighed whether to take advantage of the opportunity, Florida was an appealing option. So, with his dad coaching the wide receivers for the Dolphins and his extended family nearby in Jacksonville, Jefferson traded the SEC West for the East and is now one of the Gators' primary pass catchers. We spoke to the redshirt junior about his well-traveled past and what it's like growing up with an NFL dad, but began by discussing what allowed the team to get back on track last weekend.
3: Uh, I think just the way we prepared. Uh, I think um, you know that week of practice wasn't that good. I guess Kentucky. So, you know, uh, Coach Mellon, you know, was told this week that practicing needed to be um very intense. So I think our offense, you know, we kind of picked it up and took it upon ourselves, you know, to uh make sure that we got that right and make sure that we, you know, we didn't let that happen again. So I think, um, you know, with just our execution and how hard we worked in practice, it made the game pretty easy for us.
1: Was it just about the intensity level? Was it attention to detail? I mean, what was different about those practices last week? Uh,
3: I think just the way we came to work. I mean, everybody was just locked in and focused and, uh, and on a mission because, you know, uh, we were disappointed in, the, in last week. So I think everybody just came in, came to practice with their mindset, like, okay, man, you know, we messed up last week, so this week we got to get it. So, you know, I think uh, everybody just got on board and was just like, you know, every hyped up defense getting on offense, offense
1: getting on defense. So I think it was just all, you know, a team thing. So, you know, and it worked out for us. We saw special teams have a, a huge impact in the game against Colorado State. How unique has it been to have a coaching staff to put such a huge emphasis on special teams and put some of the, the best guys out there?
3: Uh, it's huge. Uh, Coach Mullen puts a big emphasis on special teams. You know, uh, he talks about special teams all the time, and the special teams is very important in the football game. You know, we got some great guys on special teams: uh, Freddie Strain, James Houston. Uh, you know, a lot of those guys made big impacts for us during the game. So, the special team is very, very uh, a big part of this program.
1: I know it's still early in your Gator career so you may not understand the, the context of here but that was the hottest game ever played in the swamp. Could you feel that heat down there at a different level or is it just always hot when you're out in the sun in Florida? I mean I, it was it was pretty hot on the field I'm not going to lie. It was
3: <laughs> it was pretty hot but I mean I think during the game you kind of you know you kind of get used to it cuz you're playing so much and you got adrenaline going so I think you know I felt it a little bit but I, but like
1: as the game went on it kind of calmed down so it, it was all good. When, and you know something about Florida Heat because you've spent a lot of time in Florida, but you've got a, a very interesting background, I know. So let's talk about that. Tell us a little bit about your family and some of the places that you grew up over the years.
3: I was born in Jacksonville, Florida. That's where my family is, my grandma, my cousins and uncles and aunties. And I moved to um, Atlanta for a little bit. So my dad played for the Falcons, And then so I was there for a little bit. And then I moved back to Jacksonville. And then so uh, after that, we moved to Detroit and I was there for nine years. Me and David Reese talk about it all the time because you know we, I went to a high school that was right down the street from I went to Orchard Lake Saint Mary's, and hmm. he went to West, West, uh, North Farmerson, so it wasn't that far away from each other. So um, yeah, but I went to Detroit, I lived there for nine years, and then um, uh, I moved to Tennessee and I finished out like, my last two years of high school there and I attended Rayboard High School. So uh, I've been I've been around quite a few places.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're you're very well traveled. I'm curious, you're transitioning from school to school. How important was football as sort of a, a social fabric for you along the way? Uh, it,
3: it was important because, you know, um, I don't think I'm that uh, much of a social guy. So when I went to, you know, high sc- these new high schools, I really wasn't uh, interacting with people. And the only way I did interact with these people, you know, was through sports. So, you know, uh, that's how I pretty much made my, made my friends when I got to these new schools. And football was a big part of it, you know, um, coming in and, you know, not knowing anybody, you know, you kind of get in the locker room and you get a sense of people and, you just start going to people, people start talking
1: to you. So that's kinda of how I really, you know, formed some of these friendships over the years through football. Of all the, the different spots that you've been in, do you have a favorite place that you've lived? A favorite
3: place? Man, uh
1: Michigan was Michigan
3: was uh, one of my favorite places. I think uh I think one of the reasons why I was so, you know, one of my favorites is because I made a lot of friends there, a lot of friendships, you know, that's still, that still is going on to this day. So, you know, that's probably one of my most favorite, you know, memories of uh of wherever I live. Tennessee was fun too as well. I mean, that's where, you know, I really kind of started getting my offers and things like that and, mm-hmm. you know, coming into football. So I think, you know, those two places were kind of my favorite.
1: Football is obviously a big part of your family. You mentioned your dad played in the NFL, coaches in the NFL. Were you always interested in football or, or did it take a while for you to warm up to it?
0: Uh,
3: I, I was always interested in football, but I didn't start playing football until like the eighth grade. You wow. know, my dad, yeah, my mom and my mom and dad didn't want me playing football, you know, at a young age. So they made me way all I went to the eighth grade. So I really wasn't, you know, I was a basketball guy. I loved basketball. Um, I was on a, a really good AAU team called The Family, where um a lot of NBA players came from. So I was really interested in basketball, but, you know, come to find out that didn't work out for me. So I started gravitating to football more and started, you know, getting on the field with my dad and, you know, working on, working on the drills that, you know, that he used to do. So football just, you know, it just came natural to me. So that's how, you know, that's how I play with football.
1: Well, in terms of having a, a coach as a dad and a guy who was in the league, uh, in what ways did he most impact your development? He's, he's done a lot, you know, um, he's also, he's also my life coach and, you know, he's
3: also my football coach. So, you know, uh, he's both, you know, and, uh, he's helped me out so much. And, you know, I think, um, you know, me and him talk before every game and we, uh, discuss on, you know, what I'm thinking. And, what I got to do and you know, things like that. So I think my dad, my dad has been a,
1: a very important part of my life. So man, he's uh he's just uh just been there every step of the way. A lot of times when you've got a high profile parent or a sibling in a position like that, there's a tendency to maybe want to move away from that. Did you always want to follow in his footsteps, or was there a time when you thought maybe I should do something different?
3: At one point, you know, I wanted to do something different. You know, um, like I said, I, I was I was planning on playing basketball, but. You know, that didn't, uh you know, work out. But, you know, in terms of following his footsteps, of course, you know, every kid wants to be like a dad. But, you know, I'm trying to, you know, make my own name for myself, you know. um You know, it kind of irritates me sometimes, you know, when they be like, you know, oh, you're Sean. You know, you're Sean Jefferson's son. stuff like that. Or saying that my dad is in the league. No, I just want my name in it, you know. So, like, I'm trying to gravitate away from that, you know. But I think it's going to be hard to escape that because, you know, he's in the league and he's played in the league for so long. So, but, uh, you know, I'm trying to, I'm just trying out here to, you know, separate my notes from this.
1: Well, you had an interesting recruiting saga uh, on your way to where you are now. At one point, you actually said you had your bags packed on your way to enroll early at Georgia, but then you held back, ended up at Ole Miss. Now you're at Florida. Uh, before we get to the the last part of that, tell us how you ended up at Ole Miss. Cause I know that's kind of an, an interesting story. My recruiting thing was crazy. So, uh, I, I wanted to attend Ohio State. So that was like my school.
3: I was going to, I was setting stone on and things like that. But then, you know, some things didn't work out with that. So, you know, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to take this visit to Georgia. So I went to Georgia, you know, um, that's the time when Coach Bobo was there. So I fell in love with the school and was, and then the next day I committed. So, um, I committed to Georgia. So I was committed there for maybe about six months. And then so, uh, you know, I just had, I don't know what it was. I was just like, man, I don't, I don't think, you know, Georgia's the right place for me. You know, I'm like, I don't, you know, I don't know, I mean, you know, my heart wasn't, you know, wasn't, wasn't that Georgia. So like, uh, I called Coach Rick and, you know, we discussed it and I told him, you know, when D committed and all that. So then, um, Ole Miss came back into the picture and that's when Coach Freeze was there. And then Coach Freeze came in and was, uh, was a great guy, was a great coach, you know, um, you know, he's a great person. So I fell in love with, uh, with the with Ole Miss and Coach Freeze, so um and my mom, my mom kind of you know was influencing me a little bit to go there. So you know, <laughs> you know my my mom was born, so you know I was like, all right, <laughs> you know. So I went to Ole Miss. I had a couple had a couple good years there, and then um after that, you know, uh, after last season, you know, I I sat down with my family and I just it just felt like you know things were changing, you know um at the program you know when Coach Freeze left and. I was just, you know, I just feel like, you know, I just had to, you know, make my, make my own decision, you know, and make, uh, make a decision as a man to, you know, leave and come somewhere else where, you know, I felt like um, I could make some things happen.
1: Sure. And, and I know that you then reopened your recruiting after you decided to transfer and some of your other teammates did as well. So how did Florida come back in the picture? Because I, I know you looked at the Gators during your initial recruitment out of high school. This time around, how did Florida come in and, and why was it the right place?
3: Well, yeah, when I was leaving, um, it came down to Michigan, Louisville, and Florida. So I was taking visits to Michigan, Louisville, and then at the last minute, uh, it was Coach Mullen that, uh, that called me. And then, you know, I got a number, I got a call from, him he said, this is Coach Mullen. So I said, you? he's like, man, we'd love for you to come down and just take a visit. So I said, okay. You know, I took a visit. I spent the whole day with, uh, with Coach Gods and Coach Mullen, and, and then Felipe came over and spent some time with me as well. And then, uh, when I was here, you know, they were just talking about the office, talking about, you know, the path to winning and bringing, bringing Florida back. So, you know, I wanted to be a part of that. And, um, Chris Mullins is a great guy and Coach Gonzalez is a, is a great receiver coach. You know, he's one of the best that I've, that I've had. So, you know, I was all in from there. And plus, you know, my family right there in Jacksonville. So I'm close to everything just in case it was something that went on. So I thought it was a win-win situation for me.
1: Not a lot of people have chances to go to multiple colleges, so I'm curious, for, from an off the field standpoint, what are some of the biggest differences culturally between Ole Miss and U.F. Florida is a lot bigger than Ole Miss. You know, they have a lot more
3: students. So, and uh, you know, Oxford, Oxford is, is is a really small town, so you really don't have that many students that that are there. So, uh, that is a major difference. And plus, the surroundings around Oxford, you know, you really don't have. A lot of things to do there but here in Gainesville you have a lot of outside things that you can do so I think that's the that's a really big difference for me when I came in because you know Ole Miss like you really couldn't do anything you know like that but here in Florida you have a a lot more to do like a variety of things so I think that's kind of like the biggest difference I've seen
1: a lot of people probably think that SEC football is just SEC football, but I know there's a lot more that goes into being a part of a program. So, what are some of the biggest differences you've observed between the two programs you've now played for, and what was the hardest part of that transition? The hardest part of the transition was actually, you know, leaving,
3: you know, Ole Miss. You know, I uh, I left uh, a lot of friendships there, and you know, um, I built a lot of relationship with coaches. You know, I think that was kind of like, cause, you know, I was stuck like, man, should I do this or should I not? You know, you know, I went through a phase like, man, you know, just thinking about it, you know. But then like one time my dad just called me like, so look, if you're going to make decision, you got to make decisions. Make decisions. So I think that was the hardest part for me was just to actually make that decision and leave. Because, you, know, you know, you had a lot of people in the background saying, no, you shouldn't do this. You know, then you had a lot of people saying you should do this. So it was a lot of I think that was that that was probably the hardest thing for me, you know, actually just leaving
1: off the field. You talked about all the things that you now have a chance to, a uh, chance to in Florida. What are some things you enjoy doing outside of football? I love like, to uh, go back and
3: visit with my family. That's something, you know, I couldn't do. I haven't, since I moved, I have not seen my family from Jacksonville in years. So, you know, it was, it was really, you know, killing me to see them. So, but now I'm here, like, you know, I'm only like, a, I think it's like an hour and 20 minutes. And sometimes it can be an hour the wait, depending on what you're driving. So, um, but, yeah, I haven't seen them, so I go back and see them as much as I can, and um I like to fish a little bit, so you know I'll do that every once in a while
1: so uh it's pretty it's i mean i got- I got a variety of things I can do that I you know that I couldn't do while I was at Ole Miss. Have you found a, a few teammates that are patient enough to go fishing with you or are they a little a little too antsy for that?
3: <laughs> uh
1: I don't know, I'm gonna try to see if I can get uh Felipe out there with me one time, you know see what he can see what he can catch. <laughs> Now, having played high school football in Tennessee, how hyped are you to go play at Rocky Top this weekend for the first time?
3: Man, I was thinking about this game for a long time. You know, I have have a lot of people, you know, that are going to be at that game, and man, I just remember the recruiting process with Tennessee, and you know, I've never played there before, and the Ole Miss has played them, but Tennessee came to Ole Miss, but that was way before I was there, so... You know, I'm I'm too pumped to get up there and, you know, play back in uh Tennessee where I went to high school and I know a, a lot of my classmates that went to Ravenwood with me are uh gonna be there. They've already hit me up on social media, you know, saying they can't wait to see me and things like that. So man, I'm pumped, man, I'm ready. I'm just you know, I'm locked in right now, just wait for Saturday, man. You know, it's just like it's like a kid on Christmas Eve, you know. Uh <laughs> just waiting to get up there, man, and play this game.
1: Final thing for you, uh, offensively, can you give us a little insight into what you guys are working on this week? What do you need to do to be successful against the Vols?
3: We just need to execute, you know, uh, play hard, give great effort. I think that, I think those are the keys to winning. You know, um, if we just play our game, not, not let the crowd get us, get us out of our game, you know what I'm saying? Just lock in on what we have to do. You know, running backs doing, doing their job, quarterbacks doing their job, offensive line receivers. I think that, uh, we could win this game, you know, if we just execute and do what we have to do. But like coach says, it's hard to win games. So, you know, um, we just have to lock in, you know, do what we have to do and, you know, get the result that we want.
1: Well, Van, you've had quite a journey to, to get to Florida, but we're glad that you were in Gainesville and we wish you a lot of luck the rest of the year.
2: Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
1: And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. The latest installment of the Florida-Tennessee rivalry commences on Saturday night at 7 on ESPN and the Gator IMG Sports Network, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode breaking it down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you on Rocky Top.